this morning, uh, as I was reflecting on our time together, I thought of how Scripture uh, encourages, instructs missionaries to give updates on the work after they're sent out. So I thought that might be a good way to start. Four years ago, uh, my wife and I were sent from here to go lead the New Albany campus. And so I wanted to give you guys a quick progress report since, you know, you guys, I, I get it. I get why you're here. I look around. I see it. I understand why you're not going to Indiana. You got Jamal here. Um, it's great to be here with Jamal. Uh, after a year of working at Sojourn, I lost most of my hair and gained 50 pounds. Um, after a year working at Sojourn, Jamal uh, had twins and about finished his doctorate. So, whatever. We've seen, we've seen a ton of growth the last four years at New Albany. It's been exciting. Uh, unofficially, just, this is just recently, in the last month, unofficially, the New Albany campus is now the largest and best congregation of Sojourn. Um, and believe it or not, President Trump came and visited recently. And just to, just to prove my point, I, I think we've got it on the screen. I've got a text, a picture of a text that he sent me. No one has a larger congregation than Sojourn New Albany. It's huge. Believe me. So there you go. He act, and he, he sent me a picture of the congregation too. There, so that's... We recently raised some money to do some renovations at the building, and that's, that's one of our light services. Um, we're running 27 services on Sunday, so... Um, yep. We've got incredible servant hearts over at New Albany. I'm really encouraged by that. Partially, you know, pastors lead the way. Uh, and so... I make it a point to me, I just serve wherever I go. Um, I often drive around just looking for older people in particular to help. Uh, yesterday, my, my intern took this picture. I just saw this old lady, decided to help her. Can you see that? That's my face, helping that old lady. I don't know if you can tell. I don't know if that is as funny as I thought it would be, <laughs> given the distance. I don't know if the throw is right. Um, if, I don't know if Pastor Robert Chong is here, but um, I, Lachlan Coffey wanted to make, make it sure that Pastor Robert knows I'll take care of him if he comes to New Albany. I got your back, Pastor Robert. Yep. This next one is crazy. I don't know how they got this picture because it was so crazy. We got this next one up. Where's this one? This, this whole scene was crazy. Um, now, the, what's hard to tell, it's hard to tell by the picture, but the Bible says to take care of widows and orphans. And one of these puppies is a widow, and the other one is an orphan. And I just took it on myself. I just, had to, just couldn't let it go by, so I had to go take care of them. Uh, the Bible also says to feed the sheep. So we've got an incredible uh, sheep feeding ministry, which has given birth to an incredible sheep conversion rate, which has given birth to an incredible sheep baptism rate. So we've got amazing sheep baptisms. When I showed my wife this picture, she went, ew. And I went, no, baby, that's a ram. That's a sheep joke. Do you get it? You got it? If you didn't get it, ask somebody who's laughing. Uh, but seriously, it's great to be back here. Um, we love Midtown. We said goodbye to lots of friends here. Uh, there's probably uh, some of my blood, certainly a lot of my sweat, hanging around in this building. That probably sounds gross. Um, but we gave a lot of ourselves to this place, and it's a, it's a privilege to be back. Um, we have seen a lot of growth in New Albany the last couple of years. We're paying our bills now, uh, which is a big deal for us. Um, and we are about to start our first building renovation with real exciting things like having handicap accessible bathrooms. Um, so we're really grateful for that. And uh, on behalf of the elders and members of New Albany, I just want to take a second and say thank you. 
a lot of you all gave to make this happen, to make that work happen. A lot of you said goodbye to friends, um, leaders, pastors. Uh, it, it may sound, may feel a little bit silly getting, you know, a missionary update because we're just five or six miles away from here. But the reality is, is there's a lot of people who called this place home for a long time that you all don't see anymore because we started that work over there. So thank you. Um, my wife and I said goodbye again to many, many friends when we moved. And if, if you've been a part of Sojourn for any length of time, for, you know, a couple of years or more, you've, you've learned how to say goodbye to people. Uh, it's a great part of this church, but it's, it's a really sad part of life in this church is that we raise people up and we're, we're constantly sending. If you want to be a part of this church, you'll, you'll need to learn at some point how to say goodbye to people that you really love. And the text before us this morning puts the painful goodbyes of the Christian life on display for us. The reality that saying goodbye is going to come and it will be painful. But before we get to that, we have to see why the goodbyes are painful at all. I think most of all what this text is going to show us is the kind of community, the kind of friendships that are available to us in Christ. So if you're able, our tradition at Sojourn is to stand to honor the reading of God's word, if you would. We'll be in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. Here we go. Acts 20. I don't really know how to pronounce this city, so I'm going to make it up. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
if you're willing to receive the gospel, if you're willing to believe the good news that Christ brings us and accomplishes for us, um, somehow you will be sent. Some people will be sent to a neighborhood. Some will be sent to a new job or across the world to a new country. I don't know. Sometimes we read the stories of Paul and make it seem like everyone is supposed to do the things that Paul did. You are probably not Paul. Um, so hopefully that will relieve some pressure on you at the front end of this sermon. Um, there's one place that I'm convinced that all Christians are sent, though. So this is to everyone. If you are willing to believe the gospel, this applies to you. All Christians are sent deeply into the hearts of other brothers and sisters. Over and over and over, the New Testament is at pains to show us that the gospel of Jesus creates an intimacy, a closeness, a friendship between believers that's beyond anything that we thought possible. And I, th I think we get a picture of this in the goodbye that happens at the end of this story. Paul, again, he's about to leave Ephesus. He's been there for three years. He's given himself to these people, to this place, and he calls the elders together. And, and there's certainly a lot we could learn about what does it mean to be an elder here? What does it mean to lead the church here? But these are also the, his friends. These are the people that he made, uh, he spent the majority of his time with. And he makes it clear to them that this is the last time that they will see him. And watch how they respond. This is, again, this is the end of the story. It says, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. So before we feel the pain, like, can you feel the intensity here? It reminds me of an airport scene of a wife saying goodbye to her husband, knowing he's going off to war. Uh, yes, there's pain here, but do you feel the love here? If you watched this, how would it make you feel? Watching these grown men kneeling and just kind of almost blubbering over one another. It makes me kind of uncomfortable, the, the overwhelming affection that these guys are showing for one another. Uh, what strikes me first, though, is that this kind of friendship is possible. It happened. We see it here in the Bible. It's possible to be this good of friends with somebody. And if you keep reading in the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul's life gets progressively more difficult. Uh, it gets worse and worse. The circumstances get harder and harder for him. He, he foreshadows what's coming. He talks a few verses earlier that he knows what's coming for him. Verse 22 and 23, he says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Which says something about the faith that Paul has, right? Uh, the Spirit says, hey, go there. Hardship and prison is waiting for you. And he says, he's going to go. And if you read the stories, you'll see that he needs his friends. He keeps asking for friends. He keeps calling for people to come close to him. The harder his life gets, the more Paul is surrounding himself with people. Not only is this kind of friendship possible, for Paul, it was necessary. Jesus is sending all of us places. 
the Christian life is not a static life. It will not stay the same for you. He's always sending you someplace. And if anyone told you the Christian life is easy, they were lying to you or they were just terribly naive. And what Paul is saying is not only, what he's showing us rather, is, is not only deep, uh, life-altering friendship, not only is, is it possible, but if you want to make it in the Christian life, it's necessary. There was a there was a long time in my life where this idea made me uncomfortable. I, I used to be a very spiritual person. I said very spiritual things. That, and by spiritual things, I mean things that sounded really good, that sounded impressive, that sounded very Christian, but if you poked at it, they didn't make much sense. Some of you are like, that's the way I talk. <laughs> I hated the word need because it sounded like bad theology. Somebody would say need, and I'd be like, well, you don't really need that. All you need is Jesus. I probably said this statement a hundred times in college. I don't need friends. I only need Jesus. Well, where I stand today, and I don't say this to boast, just more as to give you all some resume, maybe to put some weight behind the following statement. I am, by vocation, I am a professional Christian, and I have a master's degree in the Bible, and that is stupid. Do you realize that the longing for companionship, that ache to be close to somebody, um, that, that deep longing to be friends, that is the only need that we can say with certainty existed in a perfect world. When everything was good, before sin entered the world, some of you people, by you people I mean you Christians, uh, forget that there's two chapters of the Bible that happened before sin entered the world. You can be a Genesis 3 Christian or a Genesis 1 Christian. The pastors are working real hard here to be Genesis 1 Christians. You know, the Bible starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. Meaning, there's a couple of pictures we get of life before the fall. Before sin entered the world, before things went sideways, everything was perfect. We're still in fellowship, relationship with God. God looks at a person all alone and he says, now that's not good. Even when everything was good, when everything was okay, a human being all alone, God looks at that and says, that is not good. He doesn't say that's sinful. He doesn't say repent of that. He says it's not good. What this means, if you're here this morning and you find yourself lonely, you find yourself longing for a friend, you find yourself tired of coming to church alone, hear me now, nothing is wrong with you. If you wish you had better friends, Nothing is wrong with you. If you're tired of being alone, nothing is wrong with you. You know, for the seminary crowd, some of you have stuff to work out, okay? Like some of you have some relational dysfunction. Some of you should go read How to Win Friends and Influencing People. Like some of you don't know how to be good friends, okay? Whatever. But for... For most of us, you got to hear the, the desire for intimacy, the desire to connect, the desire to be close is a human desire. It's not something to repent of. 
It's not an idol to lay down. Our hearts don't stir at this picture of friendship. Imagine moving and wishing that you had a group of people that would load up the truck for you and just weep knowing that you're leaving. To long for that, to desire that. You don't stir at that because you're lonely or because you're insecure or because you're an idolater. You desire relationships because you are a human made in the image of God. You are created for community. Before anything existed, God existed in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he makes us to be like him. And while the world is still perfect, he looks at us and says, the only thing missing here is you are alone. To settle, listen now, to settle for superficial relationships, to allow yourself to be unknown or to not know others is to dehumanize yourself and to dehumanize other people. It's not just like, oh, yeah, that's a perk. It's not just like, I could get leather seats on the car, but I'll save a few bucks and stick with cloth. It's fundamentally to settle for something less than being a human being made in the image of God. And what's more, if you want to make it in Christianity, if you want to make it for the long haul and and not have your heart grow cold and bitter and distant, you need these kinds of friendships like what we see with Paul and the elders at Ephesus. So if it's possible, and if you need it, how do you get it? Million-dollar question. Sorry about that. Itching my beard. Back in verse 18, it's interesting. I'm learning a lot lately that it's helpful to pay attention um, to what the Bible shows, not just what it says. And there's lots of interesting things that the Bible is showing us in this story. So in verse 18, Paul says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. What does this imply? Leave that verse up there. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. But it implies that people actually knew how he was living, right? Not that, and I know they didn't have Facebook back then, and I think that's intentional. I think God had the Bible inspired, and Jesus came in a time where there wasn't Facebook, which would teach us something about how to be Christians. Let him who has ears to hear. Go learn what this means. Jesus never tweeted, okay? Jesus never posted deep spiritual things on Facebook. Hey, sorry, I just got caught up for a second. We got a, face, we got a social media problem at Indiana. I don't know what you guys got here in Kentucky. They, so here's what, I, here's what this means. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. To me, that strongly implies they were in proximity with one another, right? They shared space with one another. They were, people were around Paul, and they could see how he was living. They could see it, literally. They watched it. They were around. They did stuff together. Uh, Proximity is a prerequisite to intimacy. Uh, A fascinating study came out recently about how people are friends. And it said women can sustain distance for a while with phone calls or long conversations. But it said men, it's nearly impossible to sustain friendships apart from proximity. They got to have space for activities. They used that phrase, and I thought it was funny, if you know the movie I'm talking about. Guys got to do stuff together. For men, it's 
physiologically impossible to be friends without doing stuff together. Think about that. You got to be in the same space. If you want to be close relationally, you got to get close spatially. And it says the whole time. I don't think this meant 24-7. You know, I don't think it literally meant like they were in bunk beds and they never, whatever, had a break from one another. But I also am pretty sure it didn't mean they saw each other for one hour on Sunday morning and then said, man, we, I just love this fellowship I have. I think what he says next is absolutely crucial. Um, verse 19. Hopefully we just got the first few words. Yeah, I serve the Lord. I'm going to break in there so we don't miss because we love going fast through the Bible. He says, I serve the Lord, dot, 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 ellipsis. Everywhere Paul went, he's serving. And if you read the book of Acts, everywhere he goes, he's serving in community. He's serving with people around him. And shocker, everywhere he goes, he's serving with people around him, and he has these amazing friends. He has these deep relationships everywhere he goes. And this is not a coincidence. If you want deep friendships, you must share proximity and you must share purpose. Oh, this might sound mean, and you guys don't know me that well. I really don't mean this to sound mean. This, this is just me be, trying to be real, sh- shooting straight with you, because the Bible will shoot straight with you. The people who have the hardest time making friendships are the people who will say things like, I'm just looking for a friend. I just want a friend. If the goal of a relationship is friendship, it will crumble under its own weight. Friendship is not a strong enough truth to pursue. It's not a strong enough goal to pursue. There, there must be a mission beyond myself to sustain the relationship. Have you ever noticed what happens in a marriage when phrases like, I just want to be happy, start bubbling up? If you have a husband saying, I just want to be happy, and a wife saying, I just want to be happy, you'll get a couple of years out of that marriage, maybe. There must be a shared goal that both can move towards. If you want deep friendship, you must share proximity and you must share purpose. And the best friendships are never about friendship. They're about a mission. My best friends in this world, the people that would bleed for me, not it's easy to take a bullet for somebody. It's a lot harder to bleed for somebody. It's a lot harder to move across the country for somebody. It's a lot harder to load a moving truck for somebody. My best friends, none of them read science fiction novels, which I happen to love. None of them are obsessed with the Great Pyramids, which if you are, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards, right? Like, But we're close because we're in the trenches together. Some of you are lonely because you're looking for someone just like you. You're waiting for this magical thing. You know, the, the, the kiss of death in friendships is when I, I hear things like, I'm, I just haven't clicked with anybody yet. And go back and read Acts a little bit more, especially in Ephesus. And you see this crazy diversity that's going on here. Whole bunch of people that are nothing alike. What's going on? I, there's times where I get together with a group of guys almost every Sunday night, and we're just poking around in each other's souls, making sure we're not going crazy. And there's times where I step back, like one dude's real into bluegrass music. Another guy's an IT dude. And I'm over here, and all I want to do is talk about alien conspiracies and stuff, right? And there's times where it's like, what are we doing together, right? 
Our friendship makes no sense. But for 15 years now, we've been in the trenches of following Christ and trying to build his church together. When, when you are on a mission together, something happens in the soul. Friendship is not formed with a certain kind of people. Friendship emerges from a certain kind of mission. And when you get people who are willing to build the church together, trust Christ together, you'll look around and be like, man, I, barely, I just have hardly anything in common with these people, but I'm stunned how much I love them. I'm stunned how close I feel to them. Some, some of you are having a hard time connecting here. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. I think a great first question to ask is, where are you serving? It's not the issue for everyone. So again, don't take it as a blanket statement. But if you're lonely and you're not serving anywhere, that's a great place to start. If you're lonely and you're keeping the mission of God at arm's length, it's a great place to start. You need to see something else about Paul's friendships here too. It took three years for these friendships to develop for Paul. And I think it's safe to assume that Paul was better at Christianity than you. Amen? I like to think of him as the second best Christian in the Bible. Number one is Jesus, I think. That's a joke. 8.30 is too early for church, if you ask me. Y'all ain't ready. Y'all didn't come ready to church today. Mm. The lesson here is that deep friendships are a crockpot set on low. It takes some time. Some of you guys come and you want to compare your two months in community group with someone that's been at Sojourn for 12 years and you're like, I just don't have friends. No, you've got two months of community. And that's okay. Friendships take time to develop. My closest friend in the, in the world, um, we've been running hard for 15 years together. And I'm 34. I don't have much more time to make that kind of a friend again. What Paul says next will help further set some expectations for us and I think also explain why some of us don't give it the time that it takes to build these kinds of friendships. Verse 19 and 20, he says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. Again, the Bible tells it like it is. Deep friendship requires humility and tears. Why? Paul said he preached anything helpful, not anything pleasant, not only happy things. Good friends say hard things. That's a paraphrase of about 100 verses in Psalms and Proverbs. Good friends have hard conversations. Sometimes you'll have to swallow your pride and forgive. You'll have to swallow your pride and hear words you don't want to hear. Sometimes you'll endure tremendous pain from someone you love. When you let someone close to you, you make yourself vulnerable to pain. And some of you want to have a relationship without the potential for pain. And listen to me now. It is impossible. If you want a deep friendship, you will be hurt. If you want to be close to somebody, you will make yourself vulnerable to intense pain. There is no avoiding it. If you stay in the same space 
and get on the same mission with someone long enough, one of you will get hurt. I guarantee it. I promise you. If you stay at this church long enough, you will get hurt. Someone in leadership will hurt you. Someone in a sermon will say something that offends you. Your community group, someone will hurt you. If you want a deep relationship with another human being, if you get in the same space and on the same mission with someone long enough, one of you is going to get a limp out of it. Maybe the hurt is watching someone get sent out and leave the church. Maybe it's watching your community group multiply. The community group I've been a part of for three years now has multiplied seven times. This is not a strategy. I have a small house and I'm tired of 30 people showing up to it. And so every so often we say, enough, leave, right? And it keeps happening. And there's a temptation there to say like, you know what? I'm just gonna have like the three people I actually like and we're just gonna, we're just gonna, we're just going to have dinner and say, this is our community group now. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's not funny for my wife and I, you know? You watch your friends cycle every year for four years. It's exhausting. Maybe someone's betrayed you. They broke your confidence. Maybe you found yourself betraying somebody else, and now you find yourself keeping people at arm's length, or the new people show up at community group, and you're just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Just go through it again. Listen, intimacy is always risky. And deep spiritual friendship will at some point involve tears. I promise you. I promise you. Set your expectations now so that when the tears come, you don't feel like you've been surprised or you've been tricked. But it's It's often in the tears that we get to experience the most unique, most satisfying, most unifying gift of Christian friendship. Watch how Paul describes his reason for trusting the Spirit, for heading into the unknown. Verse 24, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is what we do with our lives. We testify to the gospel of God's grace. So, Pay attention now. We're almost done. If we test, if we are created for relationships, if that's, if God created us to know Him and be known by Him and to be in deep relationship with one another, would it not be in our relationships that we would most often testify to the gospel of God's grace? Would it not be in our relationships that this gospel would most be needed? If we're made for relationships, if one of the most fundamental ways we are a human is in relationships, would it not be in relationships that the gospel would most be needed, most be proven true? And think about what this meant in the life of Jesus. He spent three years with people who often misunderstood him. If you read the gospels, trying not to sound like a really like spiritual church person, they are just hysterical the way the disciples respond to him and misunderstand him and try to twist his words and push their own agenda. They try to take advantage of him for their own agendas. They enjoyed the spotlight of being around him until it starts costing them. One of them sells Jesus out for money. One, uh, others of them run away. His closest friend pretends not to know him. You realize the God of the universe knows the pain of betrayal and abandonment by his close friends? He knows the tears of broken relationships. And after his resurrection, please go read the Gospel of John. Do you know how 
Jesus responds to his friends when they've betrayed him, when they've turned from him, when they've broken relationship with him. What, how does the resurrected Lord of the universe respond in his relationships? He cooks his friends breakfast on a lake. Peter's so panicked about what Jesus is going to do, jumps off a boat to swim, and Jesus is like, you want, you want some bread with your fish? This is the gospel of grace. Has, and listen to me, has he not loved you the same way? He looks to them, hands them food, and says, I love you. And he sends them out, and he says, the world will know you're my disciples by your amazing group strategy to change the world. (laughs) They'll know you're my disciples by how clearly you articulate Calvin's theology of of ascension and participation. They'll, They'll know you're my disciples by how well you modulate the third chorus and get everyone doing laps. God help us. They'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Why? Because you are created for relationships, and it is in your relationships that the gospel is proven true to the world around us. Has he not loved you this way? Have you not been so stubborn in your faith? Have you not been a doubter, a disbeliever? Have you not betrayed him and turned your back on him? And yet, how his kindness still pursues you. The gospel of grace secures our relationship with God. And so the gospel of grace can secure our relationship with one another. So listen, when the hurts come in relationship, when the betrayals come, when the tears come, we don't push one another at arm's length. It becomes an opportunity for the gospel of grace to become real. Do you know what the scriptures say? It says, we love one another because they really repented to us well when they heard us. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing when the Bible gets right down on the dirt and confronts us? We love one another because, boy, do they deserve a second chance. We love one another because he first loved us. And if that reality is real for you, the gospel of grace can become real in your relationships. And when the tears come, oh, the the beautiful reconciliation that can happen there. My closest friend in the world, I spent two years not talking to him because I drove out of town crying one day because we hurt one another so badly. But thanks be to God, the gospel of grace can do beautiful things in relationships. And so we come to communion to remember this is how relationships work. This is how God reconciles us to himself and to one another. I'm assuming that there's communion stuff up here somewhere. It's over here. See, in Indiana, I've got like a three-foot space to, to work with. We ain't, I feel like doing snow angels up here or something. <laughs> Wrap your mind around this. See, again, in New Albany, this is when everyone zips up their Bibles. Do you guys have zip-up Bibles here? <laughs> zip, zip, zip. When I say, on the night he was betrayed, it's like... Zip, zip, zip. <laughs> on the night... Jesus was betrayed. You notice that word? On the night he was betrayed. Twelve guys slept on the ground with. He walked all over with. Saw amazing miracles with. And yet the scriptures tell us these were the men that betrayed him. He looks at them and he says, when you see this bread, something that you'll probably see every day, whenever you see food, remember my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. I've paid your penalty. 
I've absorbed the wrath of God for you. And afterwards, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is what seals your relationship with God. This is what makes you right with God. It's my blood shed for you. Isn't this beautiful? Consider the implications. It's not, it's not your great works of, I don't know, wiping yourself off, picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not your grand promises to do better. It's not all of your flowery words and phrases. It's the blood of Christ that makes you right with God. What gives you the power to be reconciled in relationship? It's the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. You have peace with God, which means we can have peace with one another. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear that there is a way for you to have real freedom, to be fully known, fully loved, fully accepted, just as you are. The gospel of Jesus offers you the only assurance to give yourself and reveal yourself to another human being. And it's found in the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and the presence of Christ that's risen for you and is willing to dwell inside of you. Will you receive Jesus? In him, you can be safe. Through him, you can love and be loved. Will you receive him? Christian, before coming to communion this morning, uh, there's been a lot that's been said, so consider what God has shown you. Uh, do you need to set new expectations in your relationships? Do you need to get off the sidelines and start serving? Is there someone that you need to talk to? Is there a relationship that's been left in tears that the Lord's inviting you to go back and revisit and let the gospel of grace be proven true? Come, remember how he's loved you, and let your relationships testify to the gospel of grace. Our tradition at Sojourn is to uh, come forward, rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in the wine or juice. Uh, there'll be a piece of twine wrapped around the wine, and I believe there's stations in the back as well. I'll pray for us, and then uh, communion's available for the Christians as you're ready. Let's pray.